Welcome to The Trajectory Africa. In this episode, track three, our guest artist is Jake Kendall. Jake is a co-founder of the DFS Lab, an early stage investor and accelerator that supports entrepreneurs to refine, grow, and launch digital commerce ventures in Africa. He is formerly a deputy director with the financial inclusion team at the Gates Foundation, where he funded and worked closely with M-Pesa and many other successful global money innovations that comprised the first and second waves of success across Africa and South Asia. Prior to joining the foundation, he served as an economist with a consultative group to assist the poor at the World Bank. Jake and I chatted about his unlikely path to becoming an Africa-focused investor, why digital commerce is a robust investment opportunity, why digital economy development will look different on the continent, how to size African consumer markets and enable consumption, and why the trajectory of capital inflows into Africa is on track. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jake, welcome to The Trajectory Africa. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show for track three. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So part of the motivation for launching this podcast series was to give myself an opportunity to continue to explore questions that emerge from Chasing Outliers, which is a report on early stage investing that I co-published with Kinyangu Ventures and the subtext in January. And one of the questions relates to the size and characteristics of African consumer markets. I'd say of all the questions or all of the assertions that we made in Chasing Outliers, the ones that were associated with consumer markets gave me the most anxiety, actually, not only because they were general assertions, but because they were also qualitative. I mean, granted, it was a qualitative study. But in any case, when I came across your piece, Fortune at the Middle of the Pyramid, which is part of the series and the links will be in the show notes, I was really fascinated because you used pre-existing World Bank consumption data to figure out how much spending power was available on the continent, which was really interesting. Yeah, it's a question we had wrestled with a lot, which is what truly is the fundamental size of the market? That data allowed us to really understand kind of how much spending power there is out there and to break it down across different segments of the consumer population and then try to really think about what does that truly mean for, for companies that are going to try and sell products or, or financial services or whatever it is to people in Africa or advertising type models where essentially you're selling the people to advertisers. We were really interested to dig more deeply into what's the different profile kind of market opportunity between African populations and African consumers versus other parts of the world where things look quite different. And so which models are going to work there, which would, in other places might not. Definitely. So those are all of the right questions and hopefully you'll have all of the right answers. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely, we'll definitely get into it. And I think what will also be really interesting here is to talk about how this analysis inf informs your approach to investing at DFS Lab. But let's start actually with you and your story. So you actually have a pretty unique professional background. You started out doing cryptography, joined the Peace Corps in Zambia, got a PhD and spent time in academia, as well as in development with the World Bank and the Gates Foundation. Would you mind sharing a little bit about how you went from the Peace Corps to becoming a founder of the DFS Lab? <laughs> a long, yeah, it's a long and twisted pathway, I guess. I, <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe in terms of like, things that were formative for me that, you know, in terms of what I'm doing now, there was, there was a few things. And one was definitely the Peace Corps. I got, maybe starting at MIT, I had this kind of like, I sometimes say it's technology, but it's really more of a scientific bent. I was a physics major and really thought I was going down the science track in my life. 
but wanted to take some time and go do something different than that. Just have a different experience and maybe hopefully do something that's sort of valuable for other people in the world, not just myself. And Peace Corps was really, you know, fascinating, obviously, but I I lived in a really rural uh, area in Zambia. I was about 80 kilometers from tarmac by bike and lived in a village. People there lived around uh, a dollar a day. So it was a very fascinating kind of luring opportunity for me. And I, you know, don't know very many other people that I work with in Africa or elsewhere who have actually spent uh, two years in a remote, very poor village working and living with folks who, who live in that kind of a context. So that was a really formative moment for me to, to helps me understand how Africa functions outside of the big cities, which is what most people know. There are a lot of realities and, and just the social interactions, understanding how people think and, and that kind of thing also been super valuable for me. And of course, that was kind of my first, first time I'd ever been to Africa. And it's something that's just pulled me back over and over again. Even when I came back to the U.S. afterwards, I went into a couple of startups that were doing cryptography. This course before um, dating myself. This was before Bitcoin and all that stuff had been invented. This was just normal cryptography. And, <laughs> right. And um, that experience didn't hold me. And I ended up going back to get a Ph.D., in economics, studying development and what drives poverty and people's ascent out of poverty and growth. It ended up focusing on low-income populations, usage of financial services in my research. And that got me to the World Bank and the Gates Foundation. It also kind of gave me a deeper sense, again, of how people in different contexts, especially lower income populations, use financial services, what the motivations, the thought processes are. Again, more from an academic or scientific perspective. And then went, got to the World Bank and at CGAP, which you know focuses on financial services, and got there right about at a time when it was just after M-Pesa had kicked off in Kenya and the start of that whole mobile money and, and eventually digital banking and, and what's now become a fintech and and startup technology-based revolution across South Asia and in particular in Africa. And so that was another formative kind of a set of experiences for me as as between CGAP and then whereas later at the Gates Foundation, I I got to work with the folks at M-Pesa that were really in the early days. And then a number of the other leaders that broke ground in that whole sort of mobile money space and really developed those models of how do you actually create financial products and the mobile phone products and, and mobile uh, communications products that can serve people who are really, really low levels of income. And it's actually, I was talking about some, some the other day, but like they were one of the few kind of digital products that actually do and still do and did reach people who are on the two, three, $4 a day spectrum of income. So that was another really formative period. And it, it gave me a huge amount of contextual historical understanding of what works and what doesn't in trying to launch financial products in Africa and, and, and doing e-commerce and, and, and digital services and things like that, but what's feasible and what's not. And I met a whole bunch of people in banking and telco and regulators and all that kind of stuff. And um, when I got to the Gates Foundation, eventually decided there was a lot of stuff happening in the startup sector. And so wanted to really jump into that part because we thought there was a huge amount of kind of potential for that especially in the past couple of years as, as regulation and infrastructure and digital device ownership and population have really made that a much more of a possibility, more standard tech-based finance. 
startup-driven innovation model. And this was four years ago when not as many other people, now it's easy to say now everyone's excited about the tech sector in Africa and there's tons of money coming in and all this stuff. So, but, you know, four or five years ago, there wasn't very many other people who were this excited as we were. We saw mobile phone ownership was ramping up pretty solidly. There was a lot better basic financial services infrastructure, switching banks and stuff. We're not doing anything super creative and digital, but they were at least starting to bank more of the population. Mobile money was a real inspiration. Mobile money was really kind of blooming and burgeoning across many different markets, proving that there is a sort of mass scale model for digital financial services and other things like that. When we launched, what, what we saw as uh, both a commercial opportunity, but also just a real need was to support companies at the really earliest stage. So a company launches in San Francisco, they have instant access to all kinds of mentors. They can go talk to people who are at Google or who founded other you know, unicorns or massive companies or all that kind of thing. And um, it's getting a little better, but it's not necessarily, and it certainly wasn't a few, few years back, as easy to do for, for founders in Africa. Being a founder is always a, a hard and lonely journey, but I think it's even harder in, in some countries where there's not as many other people who've been through that. And then the financial investment side of it, the angel networks, and a lot of that stuff that organically happens or semi-formally happens through accelerators and things in other markets just wasn't happening as much in Africa. And so that, that's where we wanted to start, and we thought... That was the best way to build the market from the ground up, I suppose. And that, that's basically where we've stayed. We, we started doing a little bit more late, slightly later stage stuff now and, and uh, trying to branch out more. But, you know, that's, that's roughly where, where we try to focus is take, take a couple of founders or a really small team who've got a great idea and a, and a great sort of passion to solve a big problem and help them build their company, build their product, build their team, whatever they need to build, and then get them to a point where they can raise their first kind of professional venture back to around a couple million dollars or something like that. That's kind of our sweet spot. Right. Despite the fact that you described your journey, your professional journey as a winding road, there are definitely building blocks or formative experiences that were set up over time to, to, to lead you where you are. So the, the importance of context, which you established pretty early and kind of understanding the behaviors and uh, thought patterns and rationales of people who are living on a relatively small amount of income, the use of science to figure out what's what, and then maybe also the existence of enabling conditions and the start of a revolution, if you will, with M-Pesa all sort of came together to bring you to starting the DFS lab, which is, I think, pretty unique. But let's talk a little bit about the DFS lab specifically. So the mission, as I understand it, is basically to invest in founders building the future of digital commerce in Africa. Can you continue to explain the thesis behind the DFS lab's work, particularly from the perspective of why digital commerce is important from a development perspective and what you think would enable the full cultivation of the digital commerce opportunity? Yeah, I mean, that, that's fundamentally where we think the biggest generational economic opportunity is right now in Africa is really digitizing the economy and going from what is 90 to 95% cash-based to a much more digital economy where things can happen online, things can happen at a distance, things can happen through mobile, etc. And, and not just sort of like putting up the Amazon for Africa, which we actually don't really believe in, but 
really thinking through what are all the component digital services and offline to online physical connectivity that need to come into being to really digitize the economy. That's what we see as the biggest opportunity. And we see it happening across multiple different domains, in particular, focusing on marketplaces and platform models that allow what have traditionally been non-digital, often very informal markets for services or goods to be digitized and brought on to the internet or to the digital world. And things also that really work out some of the logistics that are necessary for, for digital transactions to be feasible and useful. Like if you can ordering something online is easy. I can actually order something right now from almost any of the Amazons or Amazon equivalents around the world, but getting it shipped to me was not necessarily easy unless I happen to be in a place where shipping and addressing and last mile logistics and all that stuff is um, easy to do. And, it, and in some places paying for it in, in digital formats, not easy to do either. So there's a set of kind of almost underlying fundamental service components that need to be built first before you can digitize things. And we think of it broadly, I, I keep using examples of online commerce, but digitizing also means helping small retail shops and other small businesses pay for their supplies and get them delivered through digital marketplaces or digitizing just basic day-to-day -day payments and, and transfers, and all kinds of other things, digitizing the organization of trade across borders. I mean, there's lots of things right now in Africa that can benefit hugely by digitization. So that, that's where our thesis is focused. Right. And so I think what I'd like to do is unpack that a, a little bit. <laughs> One of my favorite question words is why. So I'm going to ask you a couple of why questions. So one of the primary assumptions that you shared is the idea that there is an opportunity to go from cash transactions to digital. So the question here is, why is that important? I know the answer seems obvious to you, but if you could share the, the thinking behind that. Yeah, I think it's mostly obvious in that certain kinds of transactions are just not really feasible in cash, right? So, so we'll start with those because they're obvious and it's easy to explain, right? So you can't send a remittance in cash. Actually, that's not true. There, there was all, and this comes from my whole academic background, re reading lots of older economics and sociology papers and stuff like that. But like there, <laughs> there was, there isn't still in some, in many contexts, just sort of informal networks of cash uh, transactions where people would pay someone who's traveling to another region within the country to carry cash and give it to somebody who then gives it to somebody who then hands it to their relative, their mom, or whoever they're trying to send the money to. And, and surprisingly, very little of that was, was stolen. But you kind of never know, and if it didn't show up, it was never really clear why, and, and if it takes days, and it always feels kind of risky to hand some random person getting on a bus at your savings, right? Right. And when I was in Zambia, living in the village that I mentioned in, in Chibote, I remember getting a message from, from our, my boss in the Peace Corps that I had to evacuate because there was a little bit of the Congolese Civil War, there was some fighting happening, they wanted me to get out in case it spilled over the border. And I, I got news from somebody else. I left for a week. I came back. And by and a day or two after I came back, this kid comes up with a, on a bike and hands me this note that had clearly been passed between like seven different people from my boss. <laughs> and I thought of that when thinking, of, because that's how people also transfer money that way. <laughs> it's much better to do that digitally. But then what, what's more fundamentally, right? Like 
there, there's all kinds of ways in which doing things in cash, even though it feels free and, and, and cheap and easy and actually often like the best way to do things, uh, creates a huge amount of kind of invisible costs or, or not, not obvious to the people who are using it, I think. So banks spend a huge amount of money to move cash around, to restock ATMs, to defend cash in transit and cash in storage. Business owners lose a lot of money in cash. They sometimes know and sometimes they don't know, but they often lose you know, money to employees and, and stuff that just quote unquote leaks. They have to reorganize their businesses in weird, weird ways when they don't have to, to hold cash. They can leave the store and they can take payments in a lot of different formats and things like that. So there, there's a huge amount of what sort of friction and cost and having everything in cash does. And it, it's just, like I said, there's a huge number of kinds of transactions that are just not feasible, right? Like you can't do online commerce. You can't do very large transactions. You can't you know, do anything really at a distance, etc. So, and like I said, it's for us, the thesis is not just around digitizing the movement of value, i.e., you know, payment, but also the organization of economic activity, the logistical aspects, the search for counterparties or people who you want to buy things or sell things to, all that kind of stuff is as important to digitize as the actual payment itself. Right. And the idea of minimizing invisible costs, reducing friction and organizing economic activity, is that what plays into the impetus for digitizing informal marketplaces and building platforms? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it. It's the main part, I think, is when you, when you can digitize those kinds of things, you can often expand dramatically the scope of the market. You know, if you don't have to do it in person, you can do it with many more people at a much greater distance. And this, this applies sort of generally. You can often also kind of utilize inputs and factors and means of production better, people's time. You can utilize inputs to production and things like that better when they're organized and coordinated through digital means. And that's huge. I mean, Africa, there's no reason that it should be lower output than the rest of the world, except that because the people there and the, there's a lot of means of production and things, but often they're just not efficiently used, right? So if you can organize things better, organize all that coming together better to create economic activity, that's, that's huge as well. No, that makes a lot of sense. So at the risk of oversimplifying, it's also about um, increasing efficiency and overall output and productivity. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about, because you have some interesting thoughts about what digital economies and frontier markets should look like generally. And in the research that I contributed to Chasing Outliers, we characterize African consumers as having low purchasing power being hard and expensive to reach, being price and utility sensitive, and generally more accepting of tech touch solutions as in not fully digital. And we also suggest that markets are potentially large and fragmented, and then often require startups to build or fix infrastructure and supply chains. So one assumes that these challenges also create opportunities to address underserved or unserved markets. And so in your work, you identify what you describe as frontier blind spots or the conditions that will inherently drive the development of digital economies and frontier markets in ways that are fundamentally different from mature markets. So can you talk a little bit about what these blind spots are and how you went about identifying them? Yeah, the, the part that made us uneasy was the sometimes, I think, unexamined assumption or sort of 
implicit assumption that we saw that the pattern of innovation and opportunity is going to look the same in Africa as it looks elsewhere. I mean, we're big optimists, right? So we definitely think there is huge opportunity and there's going to be a lot of innovation, but we don't think it's going to look the same as, as it did in other parts of the world. Part of it is you're just solving on some of the little different problems. And I think like when going back a long way is when eBay got set up and they didn't have to worry about the fact that people weren't necessarily going to be able to pay. Actually, they, they did. And that's a little bit why PayPal uh, got created was to be able to pay online so that they didn't have to do cash on delivery, but they didn't have to worry about delivering products to people and making sure that people had computers and could access their you know thing online and all this kind of stuff. And some of those assumptions don't really hold elsewhere. So that's, we go a lot into logistics and just basic organization, but there's also other elements of, of doing things that don't exist and need to be built, right? So identity systems and the ability to create trust, some of those kinds of things. I guess in general, there's just the notion that like, we can't, we can't take models directly off the shelf and, and apply them. And you have a very different kind of economic structure as well. So things that are B2B or that are really addressing commercial needs are also going to look quite different. There's a much greater percentage of the economy in Africa, for example, is agricultural and natural resource related versus the United States. Some huge percentage is just finance and banking and, and you know, investment and things like that. There's a bunch of different sort of underlying conditions. And I guess for us, it was, there's also the, the part that came up in that middle of the pyramid piece that you mentioned, which is that you just can't put stuff out there that people pay, you know, small amounts here or there and assume that that's going to take off and grow to a billion dollar business because there just, you know, isn't the sort of spare consumer uh, discretionary income to invest in stuff that's just fun or just helps me organize my kids daycare or lots of uh, these other kind of startups that you've seen in the U.S. So, so th those were some of the blind spots we thought is people reapplying models directly from elsewhere that we didn't think they had the scope to work in a different context. Indeed. I mean, to some extent, we were railing against that um, in chasing outliers, sort of suggesting that you can't just cut and paste certain venture models simply because they've been established as venture models. So, so let's get into that a little bit. So you're talking about the idea that small bits of discretionary income doesn't necessarily add up to a billion dollars. And in fact, in Fortune at the Middle of the Pyramid, you, pr you argue that... Um, the greatest opportunity actually exists amongst those who are who have maybe four to eight dollars a day in discretionary spending power. So, can you walk us through how you reached that conclusion and what you think the implication? I mean, you started to answer this already, but what you think the implications of that finding are for uh, companies pursuing consumer market opportunities? Yeah, there's a couple pieces there. So, one is like we started just by looking at how many people in different markets around the world make and consume more than ten dollars a day. And, and if you think about it, somebody who's on $10 a day, that's uh, 3600 uh, a year, right? That, that's like extremely poor if you're in Europe or in the U.S. But even someone who's extremely poor in Europe and the U.S. and someone who would maybe be in the middle class in Africa have probably a smartphone. They do have some discretionary income. They can go to a movie maybe or go out to eat or they might spend money on clothing that's more for for fun and for raw sort of shelter 
So there, there, you, you do start to get discretionary income and ability to maybe save and, and do other kinds of financial transactions that you don't see very much at people at much lower levels. So, so that's a cutoff that we look at a lot. And when you compare, we just felt like we were seeing people talk about models and market, market opportunity and other things as if they were in China or in, or maybe Brazil, which has maybe got three times as many people above $10 a day as the entirety of Africa does. So Africa looks a lot more like, say, Mexico in terms of that statistic, the number of people over $10 a day. But Mexico is you know, a fraction of the size geographically, and Africa is spread out over 54 different regulatory regimes, 40 different currencies, and about 2,000 languages, right? So there's, there's just a much different set of challenges for, for addressing that market opportunity if what you're going after are B2C sort of individuals and, and their spending. So that was our starting point. And then we wanted to dive deeper into, okay, is there a consumer spending profile out there? And so what we did is we looked at by income level. So for people who live on a dollar a day, which is a huge number of people across Africa, $2 a day, $3 a day, four, five, six, and how much discretionary income at each level. So the lower the income level you go, the less discretionary income as a percentage of total income people have, right? If, if you're on a dollar, two dollars a day, which were uh, like some of my friends when I lived in, in Zambia, almost all that goes to food, frankly. And then there's some on clothing and other necessities, but probably, it's mostly necessities. The very small percentage that you can spend on like cigarettes, beer, movies, entertainment, things that don't you know di- relate directly to your, to your survival. And then when you get up a little bit above that, four, five, six, eight, then you start to get a little bit more discretionary income. And of course, $4 a day is four times what $1 is in terms of total income. But you're also many, many fewer people. You start to go down the population curve pretty quickly, especially when you get out to sort of a $10 a day group. That's a very, very small group. As I said, uh, it's about 10, maybe, maybe 5% of the population in Africa is over $10 a day. So what we did is if you, if you aggregate those numbers, what you'll get is a curve that starts very low, curves up, and then curves back down. And, and that curve represents total discretionary spending power of each level of the population for, it broken down by how much money they make, right? So for people who are on a dollar, $2 a day, it's a very small amount of discretionary income. Not because there's not a lot. There's a lot of people at that level, but they just have very, very tiny amounts of money each few cents or a, uh, you know, a couple cents per day, really. And you get up to the three, four, five, that's where it starts to peak because that's where you have more money and still a relatively large population. And then after that, it starts to go down in the sense that even though a person at $10 a day has much more discretionary income, there's so many fewer than the total amount of money at that level goes down. And so we thought that was important because it made clear to us that actually, even if you factor in some of these things like people with lower incomes having a smaller percentage uh, and a smaller amount of money that they can spend it in a discretionary way on non-necessities, then you still, because the population is much bigger at those three, four, five dollar a day sort of level, that's where the biggest amount of discretionary spending power is. The problem is that when you think about it and dig into it a little bit further, yes, there's more discretionary income, but it's, but it's spread out across a lot more people. And if you think in mm. the logic of unit economics, okay, I've got to go then recruit as a customer and serve many more people than if I just go up the income spectrum a little bit further to the seven, eight, ten dollar a day crowd. It's not clear that there's a bigger economic activity when you factor that all in. But if you can 
you know, create really low cost acquisition models or create a product that's really viral and people just love, then yeah, we do think that there's more economic activity. And we fundamentally think the more that those folks at that, you know, lower, the lower levels of income are, are brought into the economy and, and, and served with digital products and, and any kind of products, but generally it's a good thing. So. Yeah, I'd definitely like to talk more about how you enable consumption, having low costs of acquisition being one. But I do want to return to a comment you made earlier about not being um, enamored with the idea of an Amazon for Africa. So there are a couple of different points that you made about patterns of innovation being different, the problems being different, the enabling conditions being different, and the consumption power being different. So basically the question is, do all of those inform your <laughs> lack of interest in the idea of Amazon for Africa, or are there other factors at play? Well, Jumi essentially tried to do Amazon for Africa, and right, you know, sort of famously stumbled a number of times. They might they might pull it out at the end of the day, and but I think it's almost just by being around long enough for some of those underlying conditions to change, and they, they'll pull it out. I think going back to that analysis we did, one of the things to remember is that. The first curve that we draw in that piece, looking at discretionary spending power, subtract off all the spending on necessities. And we also, in that piece, draw that curve with the necessities added back in, just massively bigger in that lower income spectrum. And we think that that's an area to see a lot of innovation and growth. And so we, Amazon for Africa is easy to pan, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but like ordering an expensive or even a not very expensive stereo or think about what the sort of first generation of online commerce was mostly pretty discretionary things that people didn't necessarily need for their day-to-day -day survival, but were maybe clothing or, or books or computers or stereos or phones or some of those things. There's certainly a market for that, but we think it's much more interesting to get into things like we've invested in a number of companies that help small businesses in restaurants and mom and pop shops organize their business and get their stock and buy their stocks that they're going to sell to their customers and uh, be bit financing and lots of the other things that those businesses need. And generally, 80-20, a lot of those businesses, small businesses in retail are selling basically necessities, right? A lot of them are selling basic home goods, clothing, and other things that people consider necessities. And so that's a way to make a bet, I guess, on that analysis that we did is that, and that's actually where the big opportunity is. And a lot of that stuff is about creating marketplaces so that they can get those necessities more cheaply. They can get a wider catalog because just because just because things are a necessity doesn't mean that people want to always eat the exact same thing every day or, or people do want a lot of variety in their choice of necessities and make sure that they can be delivered super quickly in a really predictable way so that the people who run those small businesses who are working really hard don't have to leave or worry about that logistics component or, or go to some centralized market that takes them out of their store for, for hours or half a day at a time. So there's, you know, there's a huge amount of efficiency and, and uh, opportunity, we think, in, in that area just in general, which is digitizing the last mile of commerce. So that's a very different model than what kicked off and what is frankly still the sort of the big areas of innovation in like Europe or the US or, or other places. So for a lot of this stuff, we actually look a lot more to Indonesia or, or China to see models that tell us what's the non-Amazon for, for X, <laughs> you know, sort of model that we should. Right. There's other stuff around basic necessities and things that are more relevant 
in frontier markets are like Pinto Duo in China, right? We have a company called Side in Kenya who are doing a similar model where they organize people to buy in bulk through a digital marketplace. And we think that kind of model is really interesting too, because as much as we don't necessarily think it's easy to go out and recruit a bunch of digital consumers and acquire them, if you have these kind of neighborhood organizers who go out and get you 20 of their friends who they don't have to acquire them as customers, they're friends already. That Those kinds of models are, are very interesting where you can start to save people a lot of money on, on the basics. You know, there's a big demand for things like that. Yeah, I've often wondered about the utility of, let's call it community or bulk consumption, and maybe even beyond consumption, what the implications are for and, and, and arguably, this is a use case that is quite common, but, you know, the implications for also enabling savings and investment and growing income. So it's really interesting to hear that some of these models are of interest. The other thing that I think is really unique in the way that you've articulated this is differentiating between the opportunity in enabling the consumption of necessities uh, versus enabling the consumption of desirables. I don't think I've heard it articulated in that specific way before, which is, is really interesting. And then this idea of working with SMEs to, to better enable how they operate, essentially. And so let's go back to the idea of enabling consumption again. So so another thing that another interesting insight that came from your research was the notion that uh, as you mentioned reducing consumer acquisition costs it could be pretty influential in unlocking opportunity for serving customers at $48 a day. In your experience what have you seen are the best ways to reduce those costs? Well, they say that first time founders worry about product, second time founders worry about distribution. Um, there's another way of saying worrying about how you get customers, basically. And uh, we think a lot about that stuff. I don't know if there's any sort of super easy answers. One is that the two, it's a false dichotomy on some level, because if you have a really good product that it does, it does make distribution a lot easier. You get viral uh, adoption and finding ways to sort of con convince or encourage people to tell their friends, tell their if it's a B2B, other businesses and, and people that they know who also run a store or who do something similar, that's super important. You know, we have seen a lot of really creative uses of field force stuff instead of the purely digital models you see in, in other markets where people, labor is relatively cheap. And if you can organize people well to go out and sell for you, that can be, that's more traditional, I suppose, but uh, if it works, it works. And I think it helps to establish trust. It does more than just sort of reach people where they live and work. It, it, sometimes just seeing a person show up helps, you know, you can sort of look in the eye and ask them questions, that kind of thing. You've seen some stuff where if you can go through like community groups or affinity groups, you know, one company, Kula Agriculture, that was... I think selling mostly through farmer groups. Another one, Pezesha, who was doing it through through women's community groups and things like that. You can leverage existing social structures or things that people do naturally. That's definitely one way. And then the other is that if you move into more of the digital realm, there's a lot of what I would call like informal digital acquisitions or like getting into big Facebook groups or WhatsApp groups, part of a sort of informal online community around a particular topic area. People who get online because they're trying to find the best 
SACO or bank product or they want a mortgage or whatever insurance. People create these big groups and they often are sharing tips and deals. And, the, and so if you can get into those and do so in a way that's really coherent with the community and not doesn't stand out like you're trying to sell everybody on your product, that can right. work really well too. Some of it is like if you're in the B2B space, you know, this company OnePipe in Nigeria, they're, they're creating this kind of bank as a service API driven model where any fintech can come and, and build a, a bank-based product or, or a lending product or a payment product. I mean, a lot of what they had to do was go convince the banks and fintechs to trust them and to come onto their system. And the founder had worked with half the banks in, in Nigeria previous to setting up the company. So like having those existing relationships in the B2B space is really important or can be. Yeah, the idea of leveraging or building on top of uh, existing social structures, community, and I guess um, what's embedded in making those choices, paying attention to relationships that are infused with trust is something that we heard a lot when we were doing research as well, particularly as it pertain to decisions around what, whether you could have a fully digital solution or not. There were certain embedded behaviors and preferences that made it more appropriate to leverage some of these groups or uh, previous consumption patterns. What about lifetime value of the customer? So I guess typically startups are also interested in the amount of money that they can expect a consumer to spend with them during the duration of the relationship. Is that a term that makes sense in, in this context or maybe perhaps more broadly, uh, the degree to which that feeds into retention? If so, are there ways to keep customers spending with these businesses, stay customers of these businesses a little bit longer? Yeah. It's hard to give a general answer to that because it's often super specific to the company. You definitely have to give a really good product experience and you can sometimes benefit by the, by the fact that maybe there aren't as many competitors in some of the smaller markets or the incumbents are that much worse than they are elsewhere. I mean, you know, it's funny because like the Banks in the United States have staged this kind of comeback recently. They were kind of having their lunch eaten by the fintechs for a while. And then I think, <laughs> I think they've gained back market share as a whole anyway. And a lot of this because they all just hired these massive digital teams and bought fintech companies and they just went nuts. You know, that's not happened yet really in Kenya or Nigeria. You know, there are a few that are trying, but I think you have a little bit more leeway and that can help with retention because you know you're sort of less likely to go back to the traditional bank or what have you it's not a it's not a great strategy to hope for that though <laughs> so uh you need to really you really need to nail customer experience and just keep them keep figuring out new ways the some of the best companies i've seen if you watch like have paystack has evolved over time or like picking this i think or two that i look at like they just have consistently every week, every few days, even just release some new feature or uh, promotion or something that really hits their customers' needs and, and are well researched and thought out and stuff that you know their customers really like. And that sort of constant innovation and constant updating of the product and things like that, I think that's really important and constantly staying in touch with the customers. I mean, we have a company, Ando in Kenya and they're doing dark kitchens or cloud kitchens, if you want to call them that. They have two brands now, I think, that are delivering on Uber Eats and Globo and some of those other platforms. And they're really highly researched and focused on food quality and delivery quality and the experience of ordering from them. 
And because of that, they've been the, the top restaurant on Uber Eats Kenya for a long time. But that sort of hyper-focus on what other customers want and making sure that experience is super slick and super fast and super good, you know, that's the kind of stuff for consumer-facing stuff that you really need to nail if you want to keep people coming back, keep them engaged. Yeah, I think it can be difficult sometimes when you're looking from the 30,000 foot view and, you know, the trajectory of the company and growth, you forget that growth is one customer by, by customer. So if you tra- <laughs> so if you treat one customer well or two customers well or three customers well, it's customer by customer that you use to feel growth. So that's a, a really useful reminder. The other element of it is that it's one thing to grow more customers or keep them, but it's also you can grow the relationship with the customer, right? So right. keep giving them more options. And it's always been my theory. It's a little bit why you see all these platforms in the Asian markets and in other markets that are a little bit outside of the U.S. and, and Europe, right? Where maybe because there weren't as many other services um, and maybe not as many pre-existing foundational elements, you see these platforms emerge where people just do everything inside. We, WeChat, famous for like, they have almost everything inside the platform. It's almost like a recreation of the internet. There's like almost a million apps within the WeChat platform. You can pay, you can do this, that, and the other thing. And you see similar for with the other kind of super platforms where they, they just keep adding things that keep people there, keep people, give people new things to do within the platform. You want to order food, you want to pay your utility bill, you want to chat with your friends, <laughs> I mean, everything, news. There's something to that, I think, if you can continue to build the relationship with your customer. No, definitely seen evidence of that where a startup starts in, I guess, product X, but then figures out what other problems they can solve uh, for that customer in that particular area of activity and continues to you know, develop products that add value, which makes a lot of sense. So we've been talking a little bit now about the individual consumer experience, but let's zoom back up briefly. Another thing that I've heard quite a bit about is how startups are meant to aggregate these customers to get to sufficiently large total addressable markets. And so not to be too general, but something that that I've heard quite a bit of is that you need to look at cities and potentially specific countries either on the continent or outside of the continent in order to expand uh, appropriately. What have you seen within your portfolio generally in terms of pathways to expanding into these types of markets? So we wrote this piece a year or two ago that was looking at how many companies at the seed stage in Africa were in were like multinationals in three countries or, or six or like 10 or 12 in some cases. And you just don't see that almost never in an American startup or a French startup, people or companies generally wait, startups wait until they're much further along. They've really nailed some sort of solid product market fit and they're experiencing a lot of growth. And maybe even that growth is starting to slow down before they even think about going to other countries. And Revolut just went into the United States, unicorn in Europe already, you know what I mean? By the time it went into the US, for example. And it's driven by the fact that individual countries in Africa, the economic market size whether you're B2B or B2C or whatever, it's just much smaller. What we've seen is that the African markets are just, whether it's B2B or B2C, smaller economically. And therefore, to create a company that's generating enough kind of overall revenue and, and profit and that kind of thing to be a venture scale return worth hundreds of millions or maybe billions, which is what every 
venture capitalist wants to see, you have to be Pan-African. You have to have a Pan-African strategy. And so that's why you see companies doing it from the very early stage, right? Is they want to prove to investors that they're relevant in multiple countries and they can manage that sort of expansion. So that's one big part of it. And right now you see most of the activity starting in one of a three or four, maybe five, you know, major cities and then tending to expand from there. And that that's a little bit supply and demand, right? So certainly in Lagos, in um, Nairobi, in a few, maybe Cape Town, Johannesburg, a few other cities around the continent, you're starting to get a population entrepreneurial ecosystem emerge where you have engineers and technology talent who have got some experience and some solid chops. We have entrepreneurs and product developers and designers and all the other elements that go into creating a a startup and just where the, where the kind of that culture is there, where people are hungry and looking and searching and trying to find that next thing they and their, and their colleagues or their friends are going to quit their existing jobs and go do right. Right. That culture, that ecosystem, that sort of rich environment is just where you're seeing more companies emerge, but it has to be paired normally paired with a bigger local economy so that they do have enough uh, scope to, you know, sort of test out and get the business running before trying to go in other countries. Indeed. So fundamentally, you have to go where the market is, essentially. So there's a point that you made that I like to go back briefly before we move toward wrapping up. So we talked a good amount about cost, but obviously the other side of cost is is revenue. And so the idea here is that, and this is something that you've also highlighted in your work, that some of the ways that you unlock these opportunities is essentially to raise income, particularly for workers that are on demand. But I think this also applies to the example you gave around increasing the efficiency of SMEs. So could you talk a little bit about that bit? So what opportunities do you see as it pertains to raising incomes? Yeah, so that that kind of breaks that logic that I was talking through a while ago where folks are just focusing most of their spending power on on necessities and stuff. And it's just hard to get into that very small sort of uh, amount of discretionary expenditure that they have. But that logic breaks if you're actually part of helping them create income. And I think I would put into that category productive lending, maybe, Mm. remittances, maybe. I think if you're helping people receive their income, people who are doing wages and and things like that, but in particular platforms that are saying, look, you can make money on our platform that you couldn't make or maybe augments your existing income. And and potentially in some cases, quite a bit. We're actually doing a a study right now for the Gates Foundation is kind of a side uh, project. We like to take on side projects that, that help us inform our, our thinking and our thesis. And so we're trying to do a pretty extensive study for them in Indonesia on folks that are making money on a platform, making their livelihood on a platform, whether they're running some small digital storefront that's selling like maybe coffee that they grow on their small farm, which we actually visited one of these folks in, in Indonesia when we were there. And they were selling all over the country from some small farm or other agricultural products, or maybe they're driving a car for Grab or Gojek or, or what have you. So there's all kinds of different ways in which people make their money. And some of the folks you talk to are, are really making a lot more than they were before. Not, not, not everyone, but, but some. And so the thought is, wow, I mean, if you're really improving people's income, you can make a lot of money because everybody's better off. They're better off. You're helping them make income. You can make income off that fact and the platform, the people that get the service are better off. So there's like a creation of value there that's uh, big enough that actually you can make money. And even if they, before they started working with you, were 
pretty poor, didn't have a lot of money to, to spend. Yeah, that's really useful. Both the idea of paying attention to the opportunity that, that currently exists. So that's more about finding optimal ways to deliver necessities. But then there's also the idea of, okay, well, if consumption power is low, how do you raise consumption power? Because if you raise consumption power or incomes, that becomes a virtuous cycle to kind of enable everything else. So I want to talk a little bit more about DFS Labs investing approach and what opportunities you see. So you kind of sprinkled this throughout the conversation, but if you were to give a high-level summary of where you see the most opportunity for high-value companies in digital commerce, what would you say? So we see a lot of value in kind of physical logistics and that last mile movement of, of goods and people. Related to that are agent networks, which take money and convert it into digital value or vice versa. So mobile money agent networks, but there's a lot of now banking agents and other kind of agent networks that, that allow people to do financial transactions. Both of those go together. It's like moving goods and people and moving money and value from a physical to a digital form. So we're excited about that kind of stuff. Like I said, the hustle economy platform, gig work, digital sales for small businesses and people where they can raise their income. We think big opportunity there to create a win-win with people, help them grow their income while, while you make money as well. But sort of the fundamental building blocks, financial building blocks, you know, I was mentioning the OnePipe API platform, there's a number of other ones out there that are doing sort of financial services components of different kinds. Identity falls into that, identity platforms for establishing trust online, etc. And then just in general, hoping to digitize businesses, small businesses in particular, but creating that sort of digital solution stack for, for small businesses. Most small and informal businesses, most African commerce goes through relatively small, relatively informal, so formal and formal, not binary, it's like a spectrum, right? But like relatively informal stores and small businesses. And so digitizing them, giving them online presence and, and digital payments and digital marketplaces to buy their goods, all those kinds of things are going to be um, huge opportunities, we think. So it sounds, again, not to be too reductive, but it, it sounds like the real opportunity is building the you know, infrastructure to enable digital commerce to work optimally, which makes a lot of sense. So as we kind of round up this conversation, we started at the 30,000 foot view, we zoomed down a little bit, and now we're zooming back, back out. In your, let's call it the information session that you did when you launched Sufficient Capital, the community of angels and venture professionals that DFS Lab recently launched, you had a really interesting bit about, it was, it was basically trend data comparing Africa to Southeast Asia in terms of capital flow. So from that perspective, what do you think that suggests for the trajectory of African VC and tech? So where do you think things are going and in addition to that bit about capital flows, what do you think are the key indicators of that trajectory? Well, wow. just, you know, to focus on sufficient capital for a second, that was one of the things that we launched recently that we're really excited about. And it's a way for angels and folks who want to invest in the African economy and who have some agreement with the way we see things and the opportunity that we see can invest alongside us in the companies that we're investing in or the ones that we're interacting with. And one of the reasons we started that is we just had so much interest from folks around the world who were, maybe they're an angel, maybe they aren't, but they want to be, they work for a big tech company somewhere, might be diaspora, or they've spent time living in Africa. There's just a huge amount of interest and recognition that there's a big opportunity happening right now. 
And so at the same time that there's a lot of venture money, formal investor money coming in, we're trying to create a way for a more average person to invest and to participate and to be part of it. And so we're trying to create a community around it, but also an investment opportunity because we definitely see things growing and, and, and getting, getting a lot more exciting from where they are now. I think you mentioned the kind of capital inflows. It's like eerily similar numbers to Southeast Asia. If you look at how there was, I think there was a year or so ago where the uh, total venture money into Africa was like within a hundred thousand dollars of the same amount into Southeast Asia five or six years ago. And each year has been tracking within like a few percentage points, which has got to be a little bit of an accident. I mean, they're different size regions and I don't know, it's like, it's almost close. <laughs> <laughs> real. But five years ago in 20, I want to say 2014, maybe, or 2015 in Southeast Asia, there was, I think like three unicorns and about 2 billion worth of investment, almost exactly the same as there is now in Africa. And then since then, I think there's been, I think there's now like 19 unicorns total and there's 30 or 40 acquisitions from those unicorns of smaller uh, companies. And so the market has just taken off there in Southeast Asia. And the, the investors and the other market participants who were in at that earlier stage have just, you know, done great and been part of that growth. And so that's what we hope, you know, to do with both DFS Lab, our fund, our accelerator program, the, the Sufficient Capital Angel Syndicate. All those are just different ways to support the growth that's starting to happen and participate in what we think is going to be a super exciting five or 10 years where the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the venture ecosystem, and of course the economy as a whole just really mature and grow. And, and we're going to see a lot of amazing innovation and, and new growth. So we're pretty excited about it. Yeah, I definitely think there's reason to be. There's been a pretty significant theme throughout this conversation and other conversations about putting the building blocks in place, the infrastructure, the enabling conditions, the catalyst, which is why I think initiatives like sufficient capital are so important because there's also need to catalyze investment to people who are, to your point, maybe not institutional investors because the the opportunity is so big. And to some extent, you want to see wealth captured by people who have a vested interest in growth and opportunity on the continent. So last question. In addition to mapping the trajectory of, of VC and tech in Africa, we're also crowdsourcing its soundtrack to some extent. So what I'd like to ask you is to share your song suggestion and tell me why you picked it. <laughs> so I, I struggled a little bit with this one <laughs> because partly because I'm always wary to pick an African cultural artifact and then knowing that I work with people in every, you know, if I pick the Tanzanian, you know, artists who I like, right. you guys are going to call me and be like, Hey man, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> um, but which is just to say that there's a ton of good stuff out there. I actually was going to go with Wu-Tang Clan. Cream, cash rules, everything around me. Nice. Fits with our thesis. We want to digitize the economy and, and make it so the cash does not rule everything around us. So that, that, was the, that was the one I came up with. I mean, you definitely get bonus points for consistency and relevance to your actual meeting. And plus, it's just a classic song. So well done in navigating all of the competing interests to come up with your recommendations. Thanks again, Jake, for being the guest artist for track three on the Trajectory Africa. Thanks to all of you who are listening, and I hope you'll be back for track four. Of course, you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts, and I hope you'll join us again.